Well, I'd like to uh, introduce our study in Jude today by looking at a passage in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. Jesus makes a very interesting statement in one of his teaching stories that relates directly to our study in the book of Jude. So, or sorry, Luke chapter 18, and we'll uh, read a brief parable there. Several points to be made as we take a look at this. The first one is that the, that the principle of the parable is, the main principle is to encourage us to pray. And to encourage us to pray when days are dark and times are hard. So in Luke chapter 18, we're just going to read the first eight verses. Jesus says, then he, he spoke, he, meaning Jesus, then he spoke a parable to them. The men ought always to pray and not lose heart saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So I said several points to be made, the main principle of which is this parable is to encourage us to pray. He said, Men should always pray and not give up. And he is encouraging us to pray when the days are dark and the times are hard. And, of course, we have here a story of a widow who has been unjustly harassed by someone. And she is pleading with the judge to make things right on her behalf. The judge, Jesus says, is not a follower of the Lord. He has no respect for God or for anyone else. He has no moral code to guide his choices. Yet because this poor widow is constantly pleading with him for justice... He finally goes to bat for her, basically, so he can get her off his back. And Jesus says, if an unjust, unsaved judge will do that for this widow that he doesn't even really care about, because she keeps pleading with him, then certainly God, who loves and cares for his own people, is going to set things right on their behalf in his time. When he talks about avenging her speedily, he's not talking about the he's not talking about how soon he might do that. He's talking about the actual judgment that when God judges, it's going to happen in a hurry. But he said, "God, I said, I assure you, God will stick up for His people." Now, based on the context of this parable, Jesus is speaking of His judgment on the unbelieving world when He returns to the earth, the the second coming. If you were to look back in chapter 17 of Luke, the last 18 verses of chapter 17, Jesus speaks about His second coming. Then He immediately follows up that teaching with this parable about the widow and the unjust judge. So Jesus is telling us that this life is full of injustice. But he knows the heart cries of his people, and even if it seems like the ungodly are getting away with it, he will make it all right one day, and when he does, it's going to happen in a hurry. 
But in the meanwhile, he says, never give up praying. Pray diligently. Pray, pray regularly. Pray faithfully. Always pray. Always pray. And never, 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 never give up. That's the point of his parable. Then he makes a very interesting statement right at the end. The very last phrase. He says, when I return, will I really find any real faith in the earth? Nevertheless, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And that leads us to suspect that when Jesus returns, true faith is going to be relatively rare. The Lord's people will be enduring injustices. They will be praying diligently regarding God's intervening on their behalf. But true faith is going to be somewhat rare. Jude was writing his letter about 35 years or so about the re after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And yet in the book of Jude, you can go ahead and turn there. He says that false teachers were already creeping into the churches. So he said, we better be contending for the faith and battling for the truth and standing up for the Lord Jesus. Last week, I shared with you a survey that was done in 2021, just last year, that indicated that 58 percent of professing Christians think that there are multiple ways to get to God. We talked about that briefly last week. What an astounding, what an astounding statement. That 58% of the people, of the professing Christians in this country, it was an American survey, think that there are multiple ways to get to God. So we concluded from that that apparently many church leaders are not preaching enough Bible or professing Christians are not reading their Bibles, or maybe they're not going to church enough to hear the word taught, but, but, but whatever the root cause, certainly an astounding statistic. This past week I came across another interesting survey, of uh, this time of Christian ministers in this country. And believe me, I don't just search the internet looking for surveys every week. I just happened to come across this one this week as well. This survey was taken in March and April of this year, 2022. Over a thousand ministers in all kind of a large interdenominational group of ministers all across the country. And Barna Research, a very famous Barna Research group, uh, were, were asking them various questions, trying to discern if they had a biblical worldview. Now you would think that people who were said they're a Christian minister would have a biblical worldview. That would be an ordinary assumption. However, that's not the case. For the purposes of their, of their survey, they defined a biblical worldview this way. There were six, six different theological truths. They said, number one, absolute moral truth exists. We'd certainly believe that. There's things, some things are absolutely right, some things are absolutely wrong. Absolute moral truth exists. Number two, the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Well, we would certainly believe that and preach it every week. The Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Number three, Satan is a real being, not merely symbolic of evil. Uh, of course, the Bible teaches Satan is real. He's a real person. He's not just this uh, mystical force out there somewhere. He's real. Number four, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by good works. You know, I've been preaching that to you for 37 years. Number five, during his life on earth, Jesus Christ was sinless. That has to be the case, because if Jesus Christ did not live a sinless life, he could not die on the cross as our Savior. If Jesus didn't live a sinless life, he's not God. If he didn't live a sinless life, he can't be our Savior. He couldn't atone for our sins. So the whole root of salvation and the basis for our salvation is based on, on at least this one truth, if not a number of others, that Jesus lived a sinless life. 
And then number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who rules his universe today. Now you would think those would be a pretty general, ordinary things that most people who say, certainly a person who stands behind a pulpit and preaches on Sunday, you, you, you would think they would believe that. Not a detailed doctrinal statement, but certainly enough information to determine a person's general outlook and worldview. But do you realize that according to Barna's research, only 37% of the professing Christian ministers in our country said they could agree with all six of those statements. I read that and I thought, what? Am I misreading that? I look back now. No, I wasn't misreading it. Absolute moral truth exists. The Bible's totally accurate. Satan is real. Can't get into heaven by good works. Jesus lived a sinless life. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who rules the universe today. And only 37% of the people standing behind pulpits in this country this morning say that they can agree with all six of those. How astounding is that? Now, I realize this was an interdenominational survey, so you're going to get the theological liberals kind of mixed in with all the professing evangelicals, uh, but, 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 only, but only 37% could agree with those six statements. And it is on one hand amazing to me that they still want to identify as Christian, because if you don't accept that, I don't know how you could possibly be saved. So, so it's amazing to me that they still want to identify as Christian. But then, on the other hand, that's exactly what Jude has been talking about. That's exactly what Jude was warning about in the first century. That false teachers have crept into the churches and they have brought with them the way of Cain and the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah, as we looked at last Sunday. Just make up your own approach to God. Go into the ministry for wealth and financial security and manipulate people to get it. And then never submit to God-ordained authority. Just demand the spiritual position you think you deserve. That's the way of Cain in the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. And when you think about those things, absolute moral truth exists. The Bible's totally accurate. Satan is real. Can't get to heaven by good works. Jesus was sinless. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator who's still in charge today. When you think that only one in three ministers in our country who profess to be Christian say that they agree with those truths, I thought, oh my, may God have mercy on the people who are going to those churches. Because Jude says that God is not going to have mercy on the apostate teachers who are leading them astray. This morning I want to read here in Jude verses 14 through 19. And then we're going to unpack these verses in four groupings. Uh, and first of all, we're going to call it an, an ancient prophecy. Secondly, a promised judgment. Thirdly, God's righteous reasons. And then fourth, a remembered warning. And we'll emphasize those again as we come to those things. An ancient prophecy, a promised judgment, God's righteous reasons, and a remembered warning. So let's read Jude 14 through 19. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, I mean against the Lord. 
These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. In verse 14, Jude is making reference to a genealogy way back in Genesis 5. It is quite interesting when we think about all the implications of this reference. In Genesis 5, Enoch is listed as being seven generations from Adam. He's the seventh generation from Adam. Enoch, if you were to go back and look at Genesis 5, he was Methuselah's father. Some of you remember Methuselah uh, living longer, had the longest lifespan of anybody ever on earth. Uh, Enoch was his father, and Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. So he lived several hundred years before the flood. The world was terribly wicked, as Genesis 6 describes. Remember in Genesis 6, God says, I'm going to destroy the earth because man is so exceedingly wicked and the intentions of his heart are only evil continually. And, and in that kind of world environment, Enoch lived, but not only lived, Genesis 5 says he walked with God. Enoch was also raptured, the scripture tells us. Enoch, or Genesis 5 says that Enoch lived 365 years and God took him. That Hebrew word, I looked it up this week, means to snatch, to capture, to sneeze, or to sneeze, yeah, to seize, excuse me. Yeah, not to sneeze, to seize. Between my, between my tongue and my bifocals, I can make all kinds of crazy statements, right? He lived 365 years and God took him. God snatched him away. He, he was not, the scripture says, that he no longer existed on earth because God snatched him away. And Enoch, of course, is remembered in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Some of you may remember we studied through Hebrews 11 a couple of years ago. Enoch was one of the great heroes of the faith who was listed there. But this prophecy that Jude references uh, does not appear in the Old Testament. It's recorded in a Jewish historical book called the Book of Enoch. But since the Holy Spirit is inspiring and directing Jude as he wrote this letter, we know that the story is accurate and it's true. Which makes it very fascinating that, that, that Enoch, hundreds of years before the flood, surrounded in a world filled with wickedness and evil, so much evil that God destroyed the world a few generations later, Enoch prophesies about the coming of the Lord in judgment. Now we know that this would have to be the second coming of Christ because the Lord did not come to earth when he judged the earth with a flood. He didn't come in judgment at his first coming. This can only be a reference to his second coming. So Enoch says the Lord is going to come with his holy ones. The word is translated here saints, ten thousands of his saints. The word simply means holy ones, translated saints here in the New King James. But again, so it certainly can mean all of us who know the Lord. But the term holy one is also used even here in the book of Jude as referring to angels. So both angels and followers of Jesus are going to have a role in judging after the second coming. And according to Matthew 13 and Matthew 24, those two chapters, angels will be executing God's judgment at his second coming. 
So Enoch prophesies about this event, the second coming of Christ, coming with his angels and his people to bring judgment on this earth. Enoch prophesies about that several hundred years before the flood. What are the implications of that? Well, one certainly is that God had his entire plan for this world laid out from the beginning. If God was revealing to Enoch before the flood even happened about the second coming of Christ that we're, I believe, we may, many of us may live to see. If Enoch prophesied that, you know, before, uh, <laughs> before the flood ever even happened, then we know God's entire plan for this world was laid out from the very beginning. If God revealed this prophetically to Enoch and this certain judgment to come, it was all laid out from day one. And we know that that's the case, but it's just an interesting way to see it again. You say, how do you know it's the case? Well, remember in the book of Revelation, several different occasions where the scripture says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is, God had planned our whole plan of redemption, had planned the crucifixion of Christ, had planned his redemption for us before he ever created the world. God had laid all that out. And so, several hundred years before the flood, God is telling Enoch about his second coming, about the second coming of Christ, coming in judgment with his holy ones, with his saints, with his angels. Wow. It's amazing. No need to worry about the future, huh? God's got it all laid out. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he told Enoch way before the flood about his second coming. Then the second implication we certainly see from all this is that judgment on the ungodly is absolutely certain. I said we'd have an ancient prophecy and a promised judgment. He said that the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. There is absolutely certain judgment. There will be no escape from the wrath of God for those who do not repent. No escape from the wrath of God for those who do not repent. There is a promised judgment. And then the third implication, which is very fascinating to me, this issue is not directly related to God's judgment on false teachers. But Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, quoting from Genesis 5, says Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, there are a lot of people around today who say that there are big gaps in the genealogies. They're trying to make the earth be millions and millions and millions of years old, and so they look at the genealogies in the book of Genesis, oh, there's great big gaps in them, all kind of gaps, you've got millions of years going on there. Well, Genesis 5, when you, when you read it, there, there, there's, there, there's no gap anywhere. And Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Enoch the seventh generation from Adam. And so, if there's gaps in the genealogy, as some claim Enoch is not the seventh generation from Adam, therefore, because there are no gaps in that genealogy, you can legitimately trace the number of years from creation to the flood based on Genesis 5. I won't take the time this morning to explain to you in detail how you can do that, but I'll take you to Genesis 5 anytime you want, and I'll show you how you can actually legitimately trace the number of years from creation to the flood <clears throat> based on Genesis 5, and you can figure out how old the earth actually is. Just in spoiler alert, it's about 6,000 years, approximately. It's the age of the earth. 
It's about 6,000 years. Now, there are many people, even people who know the Lord, who would hear me say that and say, Oh, no, not another one of those guys. I mean, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it just, it just goes so ghost, so against modern science. Yes, it does. But the Bible's true, even if modern science thinks otherwise. And, and this here he calls Enoch is the seventh from Adam. The seventh generation from Adam, so there's no gaps. Noah actually was the tenth generation from Adam. You can trace the number of years from creation to the flood. So fascinating implications from Jude's recording of this little statement for us in verse 14 and 15. So we see an ancient prophecy. We see a promised judgment. There is no escape from the wrath of God for those who do not repent. But now let's see God's righteous reasons and our remembered warning. Jude, you'll notice, uses the term ungodly four times in verse 15. He is emphasizing the sinfulness of the human heart. First, he says, they are ungodly. I'll read it again in verse 15. He says, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Just in case you didn't pick it up there, human beings are sinners. And he is, he is emphasizing the sinfulness of the human heart. First, he says, they are ungodly. They got an ungodly nature. That's what they are. They are ungodly in the inner man, in the heart. Then he says they have ungodly actions. That's their deeds. That's what they do. And they, they have ungodly motives, ungodly ways. It's their ungodly ways. Their reasons for what they do are ungodly. And then he says they have ungodly words. And those ungodly words have been spoken against the Lord himself. So he says they've got an ungodly nature, ungodly hearts, they've got ungodly actions, they've got ungodly motives, they've got ungodly words. And he said when God comes to bring judgment to them, God will not be unjust or unrighteous when he judges false teachers or when he judges those who do not repent. Unrepentant sinners, Jude says, have ungodly hearts, ungodly actions, ungodly motives and ungodly words and God is totally righteous when he brings judgment I just am kind of hammering away at that for, uh, for just a moment because so many people today will look at this world and they say well you know there's, there's, there's lots of really really nice people out there and yeah there are from the human perspective we don't know their hearts and the world is filled with good people you know what Romans 3 says? There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And for those who do not repent of their sin and turn to Christ, God will be totally just and totally righteous when he brings judgment because they have ungodly hearts ungodly actions, ungodly motives, and ungodly words. Last week I listened to a brief speech by a politician regarding the recent horrifying school shooting. He was outlining what he wants to do about it, and of course he was bashing his opponents who disagree with his policy. That's typical, typical for all politicians. But as I listened to his brief speech, only about a minute, minute and a half, I was absolutely astounded. I really shouldn't have been astounded, but I was at how many times 
this very well-known politician used God's name in a profane way. Over and over and over and over. I won't even repeat the lines he was using. But he used God's name in a profane way. I didn't count them, but it was probably a, a half a dozen times in his little one-minute speech. And I just thought, oh, my soul. God has totally righteous reasons to judge this sinful world, and there will be no escape. Jude goes on to describe false teachers as grumblers. He says in verse 16, they're grumblers and complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. He's been kind of just blasting the daylights out of false teachers his entire little letter. And he does it there in verse 16 again. When he says they're grumblers, it means they're never satisfied. And when he says they're complainers, the the Greek word there means they, they are always blaming other people for their situation. Always finding fault with somebody else. They're never content. Something's always wrong and it's always somebody else's fault. And he says that they, they are driven by their cravings. It says they mouth great swelling words. Uh, they're, they're, just, they're just full of themselves and pompous. And then he says they're, they're flattering people to gain advantage. We would call them in our normal typical vernacular, we'd call them schmoozers. <laughs> Trying to manipulate people with flattery. And he says that's what false teachers are all about. And he says again in these verses, in verse 18, that that false teachers are going to be motivated by the sinful cravings or the sinful lusts of their own hearts. I want to think about that for just a moment, if you would. Every, Every human being on this earth, even the followers of Jesus, we struggle with sinful cravings. That's a part of our sin nature. That's the old man, as the Apostle Paul writes. He says, put off the old man and all of its deceitful cravings and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That little passage I'm quoting to you is from Ephesians chapter 4. And so Paul says, writing to believers, put off the old man and all of its deceitful cravings and put on the new man that's, 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 that's created in God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, this process of sanctification, our spiritual growth in the Lord Jesus, it helps us to rise above those cravings of the old man. Christians battle with it just like the rest of the world does, but what we have is we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the Word of God. We've got salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we have something to battle with. We have something to renew our minds with. The world, when they do not have that, the unsaved world, they are simply driven by their cravings. What I do what I do because I want what I want. I act the way I act because that's what I want to do. That's what I want to say. That's where I want to go. I do what I want to do and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. We are are driven by our cravings. But when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we get the nature of the Lord. We get the nature of the Holy Spirit. We get access to the Word of God. We get illumination from the the Scriptures. So so as we uh, grow in Christ, we can rise above those cravings of our old nature. Jude says that's, that's the motivation of false teachers, that they, they are driven by the sinful cravings of their hearts. He goes on in verse 19 to say, these are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. 
The word Greek word here does not necessarily have sexual connotations. When we use the word sensual, we almost always have sexual connotations to it today. But the word, this, the word in the Greek text here simply means to, to be driven by emotion. I do what I do, or I do whatever I feel like doing. I say whatever I feel like saying. I respond however I feel like responding. I have no, no, uh, no boundaries that keep me from being driven by how I feel or what I, or what I would like to do or say. Now, we all have emotions. You all know that. We have, we, we have a mind. We have a will. We have emotions. That's a part of being created in the image of God. We have a mind, we have a will, we have his emotions. If you want the academic words, they say we're rational, volitional, and emotional. It means we, we, we think, we make choices, and we have emotion we can feel. But our emotions are the least stable part of our being. They fluctuate, they rise and fall through the course of the day and the week. Emotions give color to life, but they were never meant to control our lives. They were never meant to be our motivators. God intended for us to be motivated by our thinking, by our values, by our principles, which should be based on the Word of God. We don't just do what we want to do, we do what we ought to do. We don't do what we think, we we won't say what we think we ought to say, I mean what we think we want to say, we do what we say what we ought to say. That is, there are certain duties, there are certain responsibilities of people who are walking with the Lord. And so we we try to keep a lid on some of those things that that are in our old man and driving us to do this or that and the other. We, We resist some of those impulses, those emotional impulses. Because emotions, as I say, were intended to give color to life, but never intended to control our lives. I mean, what a dull and terrible world it would be if God didn't give us little rods and cones at the back of our eyes to see color. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be horrible if, if the whole world was just in shades of gray, like an old black and white TV? And the whole world was like that. Boy, what a dull, boring thing it would be. God gave us color, and God gave us all these beautiful things to see, and, and things to smell, and things for our senses to enjoy. Emotion is all a part of that. It gives color to life. But it was never meant to control our lives. Now, if you wonder about this, what I'm telling you here, that we are intended to be motivated by our thinking and our values and our principles, what I would encourage you to do for a little Bible study is to read Psalm 119. Now, you could read that. I mean, you could read any of the Psalms. But if you read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's 176 verses, But you read through Psalm 119, and you will see an interesting thing. There is emotion all over Psalm 119. But that emotion is directed and controlled by devotion to the Lord and His Word. Let me just quote a couple verses to you there. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Open my eyes so I can see wondrous things out of your law. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. That's just a couple little phrases out of 176 verses. You read Psalm 119, you will see emotion all over everywhere. But that emotion is under the control 
uh, uh, and, and is directed by our devotion to the Lord and to His Word. So emotions were never meant to be our motivators. They were just meant for God to give color to our lives. God wants us to be motivated by our thinking and our values and our principles, which should be based on the Scripture. So when Jude says that these apostate teachers are controlled by their emotions, he goes on to say in that same verse that they do not have the Holy Spirit. They're sensual persons, he says in verse 19, who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. They are unsaved. They are fake followers of Jesus. They split churches. They split Christian friendships. They split fellowships. They're driven by their emotions and they cause divisions and they do not have the Spirit. So once again we say, God has totally righteous reasons to judge this ungodly world. And those false teachers who pretend to belong to the Lord but pull people away from Him, they have a special place in God's judgment. And there'll be no escape for those who do not repent. So we've seen the, the ancient prophecy and the, and the absolutely certain, the promised judgment. <clears throat> we've seen these, this description, rather, of, of uh, God's righteous reasons for why he's bringing judgment. And then finally, the remembered warning. Verse 17 and 18. Jude says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Jude reminds his his readers, he said, the apostles warned us about this. You know, and at the time that Jude wrote this letter, there probably weren't very many of the twelve apostles left. Most of them had already been martyred. We know John was still living, the Apostle John, and it's quite possible he was one of the only ones left, maybe with Philip and Thomas, possibly. But most of the rest of the twelve apostles were already with the Lord when Jude wrote this. And so he says, remember, beloved, remember the words spoken before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They told us this was going to happen. There would be mockers out there, people who scoff and jeer and taunt and laugh about the truth about Jesus. And he says they're going to be living lives according to their own ungodly cravings. So, so we should not be surprised when Barna Research says that only 37% of professing Christian ministers have a biblical worldview. We shouldn't be surprised. The apostles told about it 2,000 years ago. We should not be surprised when famous TV preachers, I'll call it preachers so-called, twist the scriptures and manipulate their followers and live lavish lifestyles and refuse to publicly speak the truth. The apostles warned us about this long, long ago. Jude says, remember that that warning. Don't be shocked when that begins to happen. You know, almost 150 years ago, the well-known British pastor, I quote him often, Charles Spurgeon, he said, uh, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. He said, discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Let that sink in a moment. Sometimes it's pretty easy to see right and wrong. But when they're close to right, but they're not quite there. Spurgeon says that's when you have discernment. 
Not when you can just tell the difference between right and wrong, but when you can know the difference between right and almost right. So Jude says, remember the words spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and you will not be led astray. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much confusion in our world. There is so much deception coming from the, the forces of hell. And these false teachers are, 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 are a part of it. They are denying the truth about Jesus Christ. They're denying the truth about God and His power and His, creates, and His, His, His creation of us and His rulership of this world. They're denying the truth about Jesus living a sinless life. They're denying the truth about the only way being to get to heaven is through the Lord Jesus. So many people out there today are denying all of those things. Some of them are very famous TV personalities. They preach every Sunday to tens of thousands of people and millions more through their, through their digital formats. And yet they are not teaching the truth. They, they, are not, they are not saying what the scripture says. They are denying the faith. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to uh, be alert, be on guard. Lord, we know that even Enoch prophesied so, so long ago, you are coming again, and you will judge the ungodly when you're here. And it will be righteous judgment. The world deserves all that you're going to pour out on it because of their rejection of you. Help us, Lord, as followers of Jesus to be faithful, to be honorable, to be diligent, to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, even when there is opposition to what we, to what we know is true. May we be true to you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.